I don't know if any of you have ever done any whitewater rafting. Anybody here? I mean, done some of that? Yes. Okay. It, it is awesome. The first time I ever did this, Karina and I were just married, and we went on a two-day river rafting trip on the Deschutes River in Oregon. And so, you know, you've certainly seen pictures and stuff like that. And so you actually do it, and, and they assign you a guide to your boat. And when you first launch in there, I mean, the water isn't going really that fast at all. And, you know, everybody's like, you need to have helmets and make sure you listen to my voice. And I, I'm like, this isn't, this is nothing, man. I could be the guide, and I've never even done this before. You're just basically floating down on this river. It's no big deal. And that is until you actually start hitting rapids. And then you see other boats, and sometimes they might capsize, or one person goes flying out. And when you hit class three and four rapids, then all of a sudden you're really appreciative of the guide who's telling you to do things that you have no idea uh, that you should be doing this. You know, like how many times a stroke, what to do, when to just kind of like hope that you're not going to capsize. Well, it is, you need to have a guide. And I'll tell you, it's a great way to spend a couple of days but if you don't think it's a big deal to have a guide when you go white rotter rafting, if you don't know what you're doing, you're mistaken. If you're going to get to your destination and you'd like to do it in one piece, you need to have a really good guide. And what is true of whitewater rafting is even far more true when it comes to the local church. If a church is going to be everything that Jesus Christ intended... And Jesus did promise, I'm going to build my church. It is going to need godly leaders who are going to serve as guides. Really, leadership is really all about influence. And you are only as good as your leaders. We see that in every realm. But that is especially true in the church. Really, the spiritual maturity of a church, in a large part, is going to be determined by the level of spiritual maturity and vitality of its leaders. You need to have leaders that model maturity in Christ. And they have a vision of seeing that accomplished in a body of believers where the gospel goes forth and the saints grow, mature, and develop. And now, that's why you're going to find that the Bible, especially in the New Testament, gives so much attention to spiritual leadership. What they do and the character they must have. And really what you're looking for when it comes to spiritual leadership are men who are vitally connected with Christ. You are looking for John 15 kind of leaders. Remember Jesus said, John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You need leaders who are vitally connected with Jesus Christ, and they are, in turn, helping the church grow, mature, and develop. And so, what does spiritual leadership look like in a local church? What, are they, what does a shepherding leader look like? And so, the characteristics we're going to look at are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Now, there are other texts that we could go to when it specifically talks about church leaders who are elders, overseers. But we're going today look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the traits that we're going to be looking at are really true of all spiritual leaders. And really, they are the traits and the characteristics that we all want to foster and develop. That makes sense, doesn't it? That your leaders should model, to a large extent, what God is seeking to accomplish in every person. So what are these traits? Well, let's take a look at it. The very first thing 
when it comes to church leadership is that church leadership is not shaped by culture. That's not where we take our cues. We take it from the Bible. And the Bible begins here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that when it comes to elder leadership, they have to have a desire for the work. They're not just into the position, really, they have a desire for the work. Look at it, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, it's interesting here. You see that word aspires, and then you also see desires. Aspires has the idea that someone is like reaching out after something. It's like an external action. But the word desires speaks of a strong passion, like an inward desire. And that's what overseers or elders are to be. They are people who outwardly pursue because they are driven by a strong personal desire. Not a desire for a position per se, but a desire for a particular work. It is the work of shepherding and guiding believers to maturity in Christ. And when you look at elder leadership or leadership in a local church, it's really a lot like family leadership. In fact, you're going to see later on that he talks about how important it is to have an a elder who has a strong background in family. And like, it's like parenting. It's never done. It's highly relational. Uh, it's, it's kind of like you never see just instantaneous growth, but it's just always an ongoing process. And that's what leaders do, especially church leaders. It's not a position so much as it is a way of life. Now, it's interesting. In the New Testament, overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, um, maybe your Bible might have it translated bishop. These are terms that are synonymous. There are three different terms, and they're used synonymously. They all speak of the same office, but each one of these terms kind of highlights a particular feature. And if you want to see some other texts that talk about, like, church leadership that are elders, overseers, and even how they use these terms interchangeably, you can look, like, at Acts chapter 20. Uh, you can look at Titus chapter 1, verses, like, 5 through 7. Uh, you can look at this text that we're going to be looking at. Um, another one is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. All of these are specifically talking about church leaders who are elders or pastors. So, when you talk about, like, let's say the term elder, that emphasizes dignity and maturity. There are also times where this elder is referred to as like a pastor or a shepherd. And that emphasizes leadership and caring and teaching. And then the third term they're going to find, and that's the one we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that is one of an overseer, or perhaps your Bible translated, translates it bishop. And that emphasizes the function of giving guidance and exercising authority. And we're going to find, though, that when the church is established, at the very beginning, Jesus wants elders, church leaders. Like, for instance, uh, in the book of Titus, Paul was writing to Titus. He had sent him to the island of Crete, and there were new believers, and they were establishing churches and at the very beginning of this three-chapter personal letter, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Notice he said elders. 
plural, not elder, singular. So often, uh, even in Christendom today, you have the idea, well, there's just going to be one leader. He's going to be like the senior pastor, he's the leader, and then there's just everybody else. That's actually not what you find in the New Testament. You always find a plurality of elders, a team of elders, and they have a role within the church. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all doing the same thing. In fact, some may be highly visible and others may be more behind the scenes. They're going to have a variety of gifts. Uh, perhaps they're really good at service or they're good at administration or kind of seeing the big picture or getting things done. Maybe some are really excel on the gift of teaching. But they're a group of elders. They are men who are biblically qualified, commissioned to do the work of leadership. And they're basically, it's a work initiated by the Holy Spirit. It's confirmed by prayer. And you have qualified men who are leading the church. And did you notice this? That it is referred to as a work. Do you see that in verse 3? It's a fine work. I want you to know something. Being an elder or an overseer is a lot of work. Some people think like, well, it's just a position. You know, like, well, he's an elder at their church. I want you to know that when you look at true overseeing or eldership, it is a lot of work. The Bible says it is a fine work. But what is the job description of an elder? Like, what are these elders doing? What are our elders doing in our church? Well, let me just give you just kind of a five-fold job description of what they do. First of all, they are leading. They are setting the tone. They are looking to, like, where does God want the church to grow? What needs to take place? Why it's important? How to bring the appropriate resources to bear? They are doing the work of prayer. They are doing the work of leading. And so they are establishing a strategy. They're casting vision. They're seeking the Lord as to what he wants. And they are leading. And it's the kind of leadership that Jesus demonstrated. It's a John 13 kind of leadership. It's a servant leadership. It's not like lots of glamour and glitz. It's a lot of behind the scenes. Many, many hours that very few people would even be aware of that are put in to leading and helping the church grow and develop. It's really marked by sacrifice and serving, and at different times, even suffering, rather than prominence and prestige. It is a servant leadership. It is washing feet. But it is truly spiritual leadership where you have spiritual men that are looking to bring a spiritual result in a body of believers. Let me give you another aspect of their job description. They are also feeding. They're not only leading, but they are feeding. So just like a shepherd leads the sheep, they also make sure that the sheep are eating on a regular basis. If you are a shepherd and your sheep never eat, you're a bad shepherd and you're going to get fired soon. Why? Because sheep need to grow and develop. And that's why God placed such an emphasis on making sure that the people are growing in grace that the word is being brought forth. And that's what elders do. They are making sure that the word is being brought to every level, from the littlest to the oldest, whether in a large group setting like in a worship service where you have a pastor or someone that is preaching, to all of your small groups in your student ministry with your children, because the word, is, there's, the word must be a prominent place if Christ is going to be exalted. And so that's what you do. 
Elders make sure that people are feeding on the pure milk of the word. And they themselves are involved in this work. But they, uh, they also are making sure that it's taking place in the church. And so uh, this is very important because in today's culture, we are moving away from the word. And it's almost like we'll just throw out a few platitudes, maybe a Bible verse here and there. But we're going to give you kind of our best thoughts. We're going to try to keep you entertained. That's not what biblical elders do. They make sure people are growing in the knowledge of the word. They're growing in their relationship with Christ. That they're seeing how the word applies to their life. They are leading in feeding. And then let me give you a third uh, part of this job description of elders, of shepherding leaders. They are protecting. And that has the idea that you're protecting the sheep from harm. Oftentimes, this is doctrinal error. People that would like to change the gospel or undermine scripture or they're redefining the faith, which is which happens, whether it be from cults who have got a different view of Jesus or the word or they're making up things or legalism. Elders protect the body of believers so they're adhering to the one true faith, like Jude refers to in Jude 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They are protecting the doctrines and the word. The other thing they're doing is they're protecting the church from harm from people who may be divisive. Because if you're an elder or an overseer, you have to deal with the disruptive as well as with the difficult. Remember that letter, Titus, that I referenced? In Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Paul wrote this. He says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You can't just overlook it. You've got to deal with it. And that's what they do. Just like a shepherd would oversee sheep and protect them from wolves, so shepherds in a church, they protect the body of believers. Let me give you another part of their job description. This fine work, they are nurturing. They are doing everything they can to promote care in the body. That doesn't mean that they are the ones that are providing the care in every respect, although they do provide care, but that you are cultivating a love within the body where the body works well, where we care for one another. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And so they're involved in the nurturing. They're making sure that love is expressed and demonstrated. And then let me give you a fifth responsibility. They are involved in discipling. So remember when Shane spoke of the kingdom priority of making disciples of the nations? Elders have this at the forefront. We're not just running a church. No, no, no. We are seeing the gospel go forth and we are making disciples. People that grow to the fullness of maturity in Christ. And this isn't just rhetoric. It's not just theory. It's not just kind of an ethereal concept out there. We are actually involved in this work. We actually make disciples. You want elders who are multiplying leaders. They are making those personal investments where people are growing and developing. And really, a church has to come to a point where they're developing these kind of leaders. Every once in a while, God just kind of airdrops someone that's already qualified and, and functioning like this. But for the most part, churches have to develop these kind of leaders. So the first trait of a spiritual leader is that they have a desire for this kind of work. Leading, feeding, protecting, nurturing, and discipling. Then the second is they have to have a depth of maturity. And 
going to find here, beginning in verses 2 all the way through 6, you're going to find a listing of qualities, character qualities. Now, I want to say something right from the onset. There are no perfect elders, okay? Guess what? What happens is sheep, some sheep become shepherds, but they're still sheep. They are still men cut out of the same bolt of cloth. They have an inherited condition from Adam, and they are sinful. They are trusting in Christ. They have salvation, and they have grown significantly in sanctification, but they're not perfect. And so you need to keep that in mind. But what the Bible does is it paints a picture of maturity of character and of leadership. And it's not meant to be exhaustive, but it's to kind of paint the kind of the picture of this is the kind of men that you want leading your church. Now, in our culture, we have a tendency to overlook character, especially in these last few decades. It's the idea that, well, it doesn't matter about your personal life. Just can you do the job, right? In fact, it's interesting that uh, not only do we have a tendency to overlook a lack of character, uh, what we do is if we see someone that is successful in one arena, we assume, well, they must have carryover value into their character, and so they should be leaders or elders in a church. Author Bill Frawl says, quote, The dysfunctions of many leaders are rooted in a common reality. Their capacities have been extensively trained while their character has been merely presumed. I want you to know that the Bible makes no such presumption. Your character absolutely matters. You need to know that as a Christian, that your character matters. It's not that you're just good at your job. You need to be good at life because you're abiding in Christ and you have a growing sense of Christ shaping and developing your character. Uh, The word uh, character is often translated image uh, in the New Testament. Um, it's, it's, kind of, it's the word icon. It has the idea of some outward object like putting a mark or putting a press. Uh, for instance, like a notch or indentation, indi- um, like some sort of uh, scratching or indention, or like writing on a stone or a coin. And the word character had, came to have this historical meaning that it is a distinctive mark impressed or formed on the inside of a person from an outside force. God is seeking to develop character in your life. And there's really like four S's that I came up with that he predominantly uses. He uses his son, Jesus, who not only calls you to himself, but he models for you the Christ-centered character of like what we're to manifest, what we're to look like. If you want to know what maturity looks like, you look at Jesus how he handled situations, how he lived with priority and a focus to please the Father and to walk in his will. Um, another S that God uses to shape people is the Spirit. He literally empowers us with his Spirit. His Spirit is holy. He is the Holy Spirit. He will warn you of staying away from certain things. He promotes health, wholeness, vitality, walking by faith. Another S that God uses is Scripture. God uses his word to shape individuals. And the final one he uses is saints. He uses the people of God to help us take these next steps of maturity and growing in grace. Now, no leader is perfect, but these are the characteristics that a leader must be manifesting if they're to be an elder. And really, they're the same characteristics that we'd all like to be 
seeing manifested in our life. And it is highlighted by this overarching one you find in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. It has the idea that a person is blameless. That this is a man who has unquestionable character. There's like no handle on his life. There's nothing to accuse him of. They're not perfect, but they're above reproach. That means in his marital life, family life, social life, spiritual life, how he functions in the community, in the church, there's no glaring handle like, yeah, (laughs) that is like sticking out like a sore thumb and everybody sees it. No, leaders to exemplify what Christ is seeking to develop in all people. There's a leadership book I think some of you are familiar with from Kuzis and Posner called The Leadership Challenge. And in it, they interviewed 1,500 managers from around the country and asking them, what is the characteristic that they most would like to see and admire in their superiors? And this is what they found. The category that got the most frequent response was, anybody want to guess? Integrity. That's what they're really looking for. Real thing. Who you are on the inside is being manifested. There is a wholeness. There is something that we can aspire to. And so he says, you want to find leaders who are above reproach. And then this next characteristic, they are the husband of one wife. Okay? So I know that some churches are adopting or have adopted the, uh, we'll just have women elders. It is really hard to be the husband of one wife. You'll either have to redefine marriage or you just completely have to violate the scripture. It speaks of a one-woman man. That's literally how it could be translated. It is a husband who is consistently, both inwardly and outwardly, they're devoted and they're faithful to their wife. This really says nothing about marriage or divorce, so much as it's about one's moral and sexual purity. And that's what we're after here. You're looking for someone who's not driven by a sexual addiction, like pornography. There's no perversion. They're not involved in extramarital affairs. They relate to the opposite sex in a healthy way, but they are a one-woman man. And so another characteristic, and he's just going to start painting this picture. You see that above reproach? Husband of one wife. The next one he lists is temperate. Has the idea, it literally means wineless, okay? And it came to the idea that someone who is alert, they're watchful, they're vigilant, they're clear-headed, they're sober-minded, Okay, they're alert to spiritual realities. That doesn't mean that they can't have a sense of humor. Uh, they're just like not like super stoic and they never laugh. You know, no, no, they're full of life because they're full of Christ, right? But they are serious about the matters that are serious. They, uh, they are, uh, when it comes to temperate, they are concerned about eternal matters. They take these things serious. The next one, he says, is that they are prudent, or it could be in your Bible translated sensible, that they have properly ordered their priorities. They're serious about spiritual matters. They demonstrate sound wisdom and judgment. They've they've kind of aligned their priorities correctly, okay? And so they're not just excessively giving themselves to, like, for instance, entertainment, or even to their work, but they're seeking to live a balanced life. They are pursuing life in such a way that God is central to it and that they're caring for their families. You're looking for individuals who are prudent, okay? 
they don't go off easily. They are, they are sensible and they are prudent. Then the next one he lists is that they are respectable. As he paints this picture, you're looking for men who are respectable. That means they're well-ordered. They're honorable. Their life is looked at uh, in such a way that it's guided by respectable ideals and values. They live out what they believe. They live out their values. They actually can tell you what they are, and they live them out. They are respectable. The next one, he says, is that they are, you see in verse 2, hospitable. This is an interesting word. It literally means to show love to a stranger. There is something about them that they can engage various people. Even some of those folks that are a little bit awkward, you know, and they got some idiosyncrasies, you want spiritual leaders who can engage. They're not afraid. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy, but they can show love even to strangers. They make you feel welcome, okay? And then notice this. At the end of verse 2, there's one of two skills that is listed in this passage, and we've come to the first one. They have to be able to teach. Do you see that at the end of verse 2? They've got to be able to explain significant doctrines. That the Bible isn't a foreign book in the back of their car and they really have no idea what it means. But they actually can present scriptural truth and help you understand how it applies to their life. That doesn't mean they can answer every Bible question that you get asked. I mean, even this week, somebody asked me a question from one of the ladies that's studying the book of Joshua. I'm like, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll do a little quick research here. But you're going to, there's not that you know everything, but that you actually can teach the word. That doesn't mean that you're like preaching every Sunday morning, but uh, you can handle yourself in a small group setting. Maybe you can do large groups. Perhaps you, you have to be able to do kind of a one-on-one. But you have to have the ability to teach, to explain the scriptures and show how they apply to life. And then he keeps going on with this picture of this is the kind of leader you're looking for. Look at verse 3. He says, not addicted to wine. They're not under the bondage and influence of alcohol. Okay. Now, this isn't just like a mere prohibition against like drunkenness. Okay. There are multiple passages that talk about that being drunk or getting drunk is a sin. And this would also have carryover value, like for using other drugs, things that alter you with your, like your mind and your disposition and how you handle yourself. He didn't also say that you should not partake in wine. Okay. He could have. And really every single individual, every believer, you're going to figure out and you need to what role alcohol, if any, is going to have in your life. And I want you to think it through, especially if you're a parent or a grandparent. But you come to a settled conviction, and and I I give some thought and attention to that. You think long-term. Think about what you really need. You come to a settled conviction, and then you live it out. Don't become other people's judges, okay? But you need to have elders who are not addicted to wine. And here's another one here. Look at this. They must not be pugnacious, okay? That's not a word we use very often. You ever heard of, like, a pugilist? Does anybody know what a pugilist is? It's a boxer, okay? Apparently boxers don't like to be called pugilists, right? there. It has the idea that just, just like to beat people to a pulp. You know, they're a pugilist. They're a fighter, man. They have, they have a really quick fuse, man. Five seconds, something doesn't go their way, they, they just blow up. 
You can't have spiritual leaders in your church functioning that way. They are not one who resorts to violence or a giver of blows. They're not warlike. They're not belligerent. They don't have a contentious nature. They're not quarrelsome, overbearing, violent, hot-headed, self-willed. You want people that are in control. They're not fighters by nature. They can, and this refers uh, not just to physical, but even verbal. And it's interesting, 2,000 years ago, a lot of times, if they had a disagreement, like, they would just settle it by fighting, you know, physically, okay? None of that. God wants his leaders functioning and behaving well. Charles Spurgeon uh, told his students in the pastor's college, listen, I don't want you to go about in the world with your fist doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers, okay? And sometimes you find some of these people, they're oftentimes like one-issue kind of people. They've got their one issue, and they're just ready to club them, anybody they can find. They're pinning people against the wall at the church, you know. They're just blowing up their small group because they're one-issue, they're kind of fighting kind of people. They may come up as quasi-spiritual, but you don't really want that. When it comes to spiritual leaders, you don't want them pugnacious. That's why Paul writes these things here. They can't be running around with a chip on their shoulder or with a judgmental, critical attitude. Grumpy old men might make for a good movie. They make for bad elders. You don't want them. No. They've got to not be pugnacious. But what should they be look like? Well, he goes on to say they should be gentle. Okay? You see that right after pugnacious? No. You don't want pugnacious. You want gentle. Has the idea that they're considerate, genial, gracious. They're quick to pardon failure. They don't hold a grudge. And you see a gentleness in their speech and in their actions. They're kind. They're moderate. They're yielding. They don't have to dominate. They don't have to be the star of the show. They are gentle in nature. People are not afraid of them. They're not bullying people around. And then notice what else he says right after gentle. They're to be peaceful, peaceable. Has the idea that they're reluctant to fight. They are ones who promote unity and harmony. And then here's one. Look at this, verse 3. Free from the love of money. You know, that's really what Christ is seeking to cultivate in all of us. That we do not have the idol of money running our lives. It doesn't mean that you can't have money. It doesn't even mean that you can't have a lot of money. The problem is when you love it. When it becomes your God, your sense of security and well-being comes with how much finance you have. It's like the God that drives you. If it is finances, money, uh, your retirement, friends, you've got the wrong deity. They cannot be lovers of money. They need to be lovers of God. And so he says, when it comes to spiritual leadership, these are the characteristics And then we come to another one of those abilities and skills. Remember I told you there were two? One we saw is that they have to have the ability to teach. Because you've got to be able to present truth in such a way that people can understand it. So he highlights character. But you've got to have a couple of skills. And you've got to be competent with them. You have to be able to teach. You saw that in verse 2. But you also have to be able to lead well. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So he's saying, if you want leadership developed, the very best place to develop spiritual leadership is in 
the home. Because being an elder is a lot like being a parent. And so he says, this is what you need. You know, you need elders who are good leaders in their home. That doesn't mean um, that their families are perfect, okay? I want you to know that there are no perfect parents and there are no perfect children, okay? But that you have parents, specifically in this case, men, who are leading from a position of respect and influence, not power and authority. They're not like ruling their family with an iron fist. Or on the other hand, they could just care less. Like, oh, I don't care what my kids do. It doesn't really matter to me. And the family is just fragmenting and going all different directions. There is no spiritual leadership. There's no idea, of course, of where we're going and how we're going to get there. Why it's important? No, you've got to have elders who actually see uh, this being manifested in their family so it has a possibility of being manifest in the church. Now, I do want to say that it doesn't mean that they have to be a, uh, a husband and a parent. Uh, the Apostle Paul wasn't married, didn't have children. But he's talking about the kind of leader you're looking for. A leader who is calm and they, they can create a structured environment. Um, so this is what leaders do. And it starts in the family. But this is what leaders do. They create and cast vision. They promote and protect a Christ-centered culture. Leaders deal with difficulties, just like parents have to deal with difficulties, like all the time, right? That's what you do as parents. Guess what? Same in a church. You deal with difficulties. Um, Elders need to develop structure for a growing church. That takes a lot of work. And they also need to identify, invest in, and empower leaders and teams. And it all gets started with the family, but it has carryover value into the church. And leaders cannot be passive. You've got to take responsibility. It is a sorry situation if you have an elder or an overseer that just goes passive and doesn't actually act or do anything No, he says, that's why you're looking for these kind of leaders. They're engaged with their family. Chances are they can be engaged with the church. And here's something else I want to show you. Look at verse 6. And they are not to be a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The condemnation incurred by the devil uh, was pride. And if you get a new believer... And you stick them into high levels of leadership, it's kind of like, too much, too soon, too bad. I don't care if he's successful in business. He needs to mature in Christ. He needs to demonstrate character of growth. And that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. And Satan, it's kind of like a sniper. They're going to go after, like, officers, right? That's what the snipers do. They're going to go after those high-level people. And that's what Satan does. Like, man, if I could take out some of those top leaders and send this church into chaos. And one of the ways the church goes into chaos real quick is if you have a conceited, relatively new believer and they're in position of spiritual leadership. And so these are, this are the traits that he lists here. Now, you might be thinking like, whoa, you went through some of those and uh, I, uh, I feel like I've got some work to do on some of those Um, I want you to know that God wants to address those things. He wants to develop your character fully. You know, what happens if you have a broken bone? Like if you have a broken arm or leg? Anybody know what to do? 
Kids, where are the kids? Anybody know? What, if you have a broken bone, what do you do? That's right. You go to the doctor, right? Go to an emergency room. What? And what are they going to do? They're going to set that baby. They're going to put a cast on it. And we're going to return you to health. You're going to be better than you ever were before, right? And so if you see like, whoa, there's, man, you get some things here that I directly need to address. This is what you do. How do you overcome sinful patterns? Well, you call it what it is. You call it sin, okay? You identify the problem. Don't rationalize it. Second, you confess it and communicate with Christ. You confess it and you start talking to Jesus about this. You repent of your sin. Uh, you renew yourself with truth and grace that you're fully forgiven, but that God intends to bring about holiness in your life. And you redirect your steps, okay? You, it's like you see, whoa, I'm going in this direction. Lord, help me to walk in a healthy pattern. And that means you might want to connect with others because others can help you overcome because health is worth it. The health of a church is, de- is really determined by the health of its individual members. And so he says, that's what you want to do. But this passage really emphasizes you want to have leaders who've got a high measure of health and maturity. If you don't have Christ-centered leaders, you're going to have a human-centered church. And it might do an occasional little bit of societal good, but it will not be what Jesus intended the church to be in the world. And then finally, uh, speaking of the world, there's one other priority uh, trait of a shepherding leader. It's found in verse 7. They have to have a demonstrated testimony to the world. Look at this. And he must be have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall under reproach and the snare of the devil. You see that? It has to be a good idea with the person's non-believer, believing co-worker or neighbor. It makes sense. Like, for instance, you, you know, like, like you're being considered for an elder position. What's that? You're, uh, you're talking with their coworker. You explain like leadership in the local church, and they go, "Well, I may not agree with his morality and what he believes, but he is a man of integrity, and that makes sense. You've got to have a fully integrated, consistent life. These are the traits of church overseers. They desire the work. They have a depth of maturity, and they have a demonstrated testimony to the world. And that is why uh, growing believers need shepherding leaders. Like it says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so friends, if you're going to go down the river, you're going to need some good guides. It's very interesting. After the resurrection, Spiritual shepherding was on the forefront of Jesus' mind. Remember uh, when he calls Peter, and we generally think of this where he's restoring Peter? Remember at the end in John chapter 21? But it's far more than restoring Peter from his denials. It is commissioning Peter, I want you to lead with love. I want you to shepherd people like I shepherd people. Remember, I want you to feed my sheep, tend my lambs. I want you to care for people like I do it. And the way you do it is in my strength. Because growing believers need shepherding leaders. Friends, this is what we aspire to at Fellowship Bible Church. We're taking our cues not from culture, not from the world. We're following the word. And so let's take a moment here to pray. Lord, thank you for the power.
power of Scripture. How you lay it out with such clarity what it looks like for a church to have spiritual leaders and why that is important. And so, Lord, thank you for doing this in our church. And perhaps, Lord, as we've gone through these character qualities you're seeking to develop in all of us, that there is an indication that um, we need to confess some sin right now and ask you for next steps. So would you do that right now? And if someone here is here today and they never trusted Jesus, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I believe in Christ. And Lord, would you continue the good work you've started in each of us and in all of us and in our church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.